think about uh, giving up desire in Buddha it's a source of dukkha is this tanha craving wanting to hold on to things and, and belong to things associate with things feel embedded in things, feel embedded in something, belong to something, be something, become something. Or wanting to to get out of it all, get away from it, get away from the impingements and the consciousness and perceptions and feelings. Or just the or the sense sense cravings is to feed on something to feed on feed on eye contact nose contact touch contact so you can get a contact and the pleasant feelings from. Is it just is it just desire that's the problem? Mm. Also, the Buddha said it's not a problem with ignorance or ignorance about desire. If you like the two compounding together, not understanding it through not seeing it. He said through not seeing this, we have wandered, you and I, for millennia looking and seeking and trying to find and belong and own and get and get rid of. And suffering. It's not even realizing we're suffering a lot of the time. Because it's not always that acute. This is just a kind of vague itchiness or little things pecking away at the mind. The only you, would you meditate, you realize how much suffering there is. Is this, this clearing away of some of the ignorance of it through, through a bit more focusing and stillness and reference. Yeah. And uh, things to standards to refer off of refer to calm or peacefulness or virtuousness or sensitivity or kindness things that we realize are the right and not that not really that esoteric or refined or specialized this kind of good you know, obvious good things and yet we sometimes feel well you know, we can't do them because we don't have the situation for it perhaps or we're too busy, but then when we do have a situation for it, nothing else for it, but to, to do that, then we find that 
everything is set up everything is set up for us to be feeler still, quiet, reflective calm all the most highest aspirations of kind of encouraged that we can still find that we're not, we're not getting it right and then there's suffering a lot more suffering doubt, despair or gnawing feeling of what's wrong when, when will I ever do this why can't I do it The uh, ignorance and desire wound together, and one of the things that the, the, the compounding of this is the sense of of self. How we, the suffering is because of because of I, I suffer because I'm not what I should be, or I, I haven't got what I could get, or. I don't match up to my projected ideals or images. And so certainly the you can see that the teaching on Anatta is, is a very profound one. Difficult really to measure, difficult to comprehend truly because at first you don't see how you could possibly cultivate without some sense of I want to be this way, I don't want to be that way I should be like this and I shouldn't be like that I need to put my mind here and not there and this is what's good for me and this isn't and yet also that very positioning tends to that, that way of considering things is certainly a place where we recognize uh, conflict and suffering and disappointment doubt and worry certainly in the ongoing process of practice then uh, we kind of keep reviewing this position this experience of self and keep reviewing the various desires formations that come up and trying to to cultivate understanding of how it how it all happens, how it works, where the where the breaks are, and what they're like, and what the not suffering is about, and how we how that arises, what can you what the path is, and certainly o- over time, the more you the more the, the mind becomes familiar with the territory, then one great uh, uh, advantage is that. You begin to see the whole thing much more dispassionately in terms of the understanding the path and the practice rather than the self and lamenting over it or grieving over it or fantasizing about it or or wishing it would be a certain way or wondering when it will get to this point have I become this yet we just consider things in terms of path practice the fruits the hindrances and so on which when you read about it, it sounds so kind of cold and bleak, but actually becomes much more skillful than always thinking in terms of how I am. So this wise reference, wise recollection, is is suitable, is helpful, and very often the recollections, the recollections that we can we can come to come to use quite obviously are the forms that, that of, of hindrances what are called the five hindrances and these are these are like guardians of the Dhamma they're the, they're the they're this, these are very very accomplished wrestlers that you have to find a way to get past to enter the Dhamma and they're very, they're very accomplished. They're like octopuses. You know, if you think you've got past one, it snakes out an arm and grabs hold of you again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By another arm, you chop that one off, and then two other arms seem to spring up. So these, you have to be really pretty sharp, times to get to to get past these. The, 
But first of all, we recognize that how is it that if the problem is ignorance and desire, why is it also things like doubt and restlessness and worry? What's that got to do with desire? So you recollecting is in terms of of the the noble truths of desire or the dependent origination, ignorance, which are the basic teachings. It's, it's quite good to rec- it helps you to understand the hindrances a little more, and then you can understand more clearly how to how to resolve them. We see them in terms of desire, then obviously sense desire is quite obviously desire. Ill will is, well, you know, it's desire to get rid of things. And then uh, what about uh, doubt? How is that? How is that a desire? What's that going to do with desire? Isn't it that uh, doubting mind is always looking for some certainty in an, in an idea? or a mental projection, an image, a notion, or a thought. Is it this? So then we bring up an idea in our mind. Is it that idea? Or maybe then we bring up another idea in our mind. Maybe it's that idea. And when the, the doubting mind tends to swing between one idea and the other idea, one image and the other image, one possibility and the other possibility, which is the best one? This one or that one? So it's kind of like desire, choosing one image or another image, one impression or another impression, one mind object or another mind object. And of course, like the thing about desire is it's it's restless and it's unsatisfied. Because you can't be satisfied, so the the great teaching of doubt, if you understand it, is that you can never be satisfied with the mind object. Because you can create one, and then the next day you can create another one. The opposite. Sometimes you don't have to wait a day. It just oscillates like five seconds of this, five seconds of that. It swings frantically. And yet the feeling is, if I just really thought about this long enough and hard enough, I'd find the right one, the right mind image, the right thought. So we keep pumping them out. And then maybe refining them and fiddling with them and whittling them down and building them up and then we you know it goes on like that you don't recognize hey you know this is desire looking for certainty in in, a, in something that can never be certain because these mind created objects are impermanent unsatisfactory so if you you have a belief or a dogma that you believe in, then you may think, you know, I have no, no doubt at all, I know exactly this is what's right, and this is the right way, and this is the true path, and only this is right, and nobody else is right. I have no doubt at all. This just means you have a tremendous amount of desire. <laughs> That's actually a sustaining it. You can, you, can, you can feel it if you get that idea. It's like dogmatism is a kind of tremendous desire to be right. I'm right, and you're wrong. And this is right, and nobody else is right. And so that, in that state, when we're dogmatic, and somebody else says, well, well, I think, I've heard it said this way, no, nope, it can't be. Does that sound like wisdom? <laughs> is that the way, you know? Why, why is it, why did somebody who's really convinced and certain, why do they, why do they act like that? Is that a sign of certainty, or is it a sign of tremendous ability to 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 dispense with doubt by a belief and by creating a very powerful mind object that then you you empower and hold on to? So, how can there be no doubt? It's only when one understands the nature of mind objects and you don't believe in any of them. As ultimate or real or the way it has to be or the only way or everybody's got to be like this or this is a mind object in my mind, it's like this. It rises and it ceases and it's not right and it's not wrong. It's just that. 
And when we see doubt in terms of desire, it helps helps to deal with it. Because otherwise we tend to deal with doubt just by by holding, by attachment, by clinging, by kind of putting a lot of energy into a particular thought. Rather than the opposite, which is taking energy out of the thought and seeing, you know, it's it's empty. There's no doubt about that. Because it is. It comes and goes. Thoughts, everybody has them. Everybody's a, you know, everybody has an opinion and they're generally all different. <laughs> <laughs> So this is why the Buddha is so strongly you know, re- rec- encourages us to understand the nature of views and opinions. Because I do not see the holding of any view which would not give rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Suffering. Desire for a view. And then why? Why is there such a desire for certainty and for view? Because when, when I've got the right idea, I feel solid and I feel right. A big desire for self there, isn't there? To, to, which may not be kind of just on a gross egotistical level, but you know, from a sort of fairly high-minded level. Like, you know, I want to show you all the right way, and I know what it is. I want to convince you of the right way, which is, I'm telling you the right way, because I know the right way it is. I'm very sincere, I'm not being big-headed about this, I just happen to know what's right. (laughs) And it says so in the book here. But why do I have to be right? And that kind of position, the, you know, this, the how much of the this when you begin to understand what self is. It's not always just a kind of selfish, mean, lowly thing, but it's the the way in which experiences are reflected back and creates this impression, a thought, a feeling, a sense contact. It's reflected back, it's kind of bent back, refracted into the mind, and there's this kind of mood or aroma or kind of sometimes clearly etched, but sometimes not very clearly etched. It's a sense of there being somebody who has that or who is that or who holds it or is defined by it. And if, it's a, if we're in a good position and we're talking what seems to be right and true, then we feel right and true. But it's then it becomes very important for us to, from the point of view of ourselves, to feel we know what's right and true. So that we'll feel right and true in ourselves. And the desire for that kind of self thing is, is so strong that human beings, many of human beings throughout the ages have have been quite often very convinced they know what's right and true and have jumped to conclusions and have dismissed everybody else and even persecuted everybody else in order to feel they are right and true. And if my being right and true depends on me convincing you of it then I will do that whether you like it or not. <laughs> this is desire for self, isn't it? A, but we can see it's, it's quite a it's quite a subtle thing, in a way, and yet very very powerful and pervasive. And doubt is like wanting to feel one is one is doing do, approved of or. No, not, not offending anybody or you know, it's doubt like that. And then of course it does tie into restlessness and worry. The fourth hindrance of dullness 
He's like, uh, this is basically, it's like the, we see this in terms of desire, dullness is obviously, you know, no, I don't want to be around. It's the, it's the vibhava. So this is not just purely a matter of physical energy, but when we see it in terms of desire, then it's that in us which can't be bothered, doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to do, doesn't want to be awake, doesn't want to be here, doesn't want to be anywhere, leave me alone, shut up, I've had enough. Ugh. Numbness and dumbness, <laughs> tina midha. So sometimes we think dullness is just feeling sleepy, but uh, it's not just the physical fatigue or the rhythms of the energy of the mind, but dullness is like a, a spiritual, a psychological quality that doesn't respond. And it can be triggered off by you know, things that don't delight us or are painful, or things like low energies. We think, oh, fed up with this. So we go numb, dumb. Or it can be just being bored. Uh, you know, sometimes we, all night sitting, you think you're really, really sleepy, and why oh, is it really difficult? And then you know, something exciting happens, and you're rather wide awake. Only exciting things don't happen all night sitting, but <laughs> you know, somebody brings in a load of marshmallows or cheese, or you know, suddenly, ooh! I've read people who found it impossible to do all night sittings until you have a video playing and they can actually sit quite wide awake all night long <laughs> watch video watch a video which I hasten to add because it's being taped we only play videos here two or three times a year <laughs> we do not sit around the telly every night watching <laughs> be careful when you get recorded saying <laughs> Suddenly there's something interesting, you can be awake. Why is, you know, so it's not just the physical fatigue that the mind can't be bothered with. And when we recognize it as this, we perhaps realize that dullness can be there when actually we are, technically speaking, awake. (laughs) (laughs) The eyes are open, the mouth is moving, the body's lumbering around, and yet basically the spiritual faculties of have gone to rest, or not, not engaged. We get a kind of bored dreariness to our life. We don't notice things, don't take an interest in anything, can't be bothered. This is dullness. This is vibhava, desire to get away from. And why? Why do we want to get away from things? So often, in, in just on a daily life level, it's because we can't cope with things. We feel we can't cope with things. It's too much jangle. It's it's it's. I don't feel right. It's it's unfamiliar. So it's, if the unfamiliar, we'll, we won't be. Able, we'll feel awkward, or we won't be able to go on and put on a good performance. Then we lose interest in. Because we again, it's because a sense of self is is of being looking not very. You know, it's not. Bright or, or glorious, we lose. We lose it. We get dull about doing boring old chores. You can kind of uh, mop out the scullery again, and because the impression of mopping the scullery is not something you can make a big self thing out of. Just feel like, who cares? Any old idiot can do this. So where perhaps we would otherwise feel embarrassed or awkward or, or, or put in the wrong place, we lose interest. We go, dullness can be a kind of defense mechanism from, from our self looking awkward or, or low or out of place or, or unbalanced. The restlessness is, uh, so this, this is quite dullness, in fact, when you look at it very clearly, you can look at dullness clearly, you consider it, then 
see how much it does extend into life, into one's daily life, not just uh, say in an all-night sitting. Let's really watch this. Un- because you can see it when you actually are. You do have the physical energy. It's there. You can actually contemplate the dullness of being bored, the dullness of being half-hearted about doing things, the dullness of a kind of can't-be-bothered, indolent state of mind. When actually we are, you know, we do have awakeness to, to, to witness it, to contemplate it. And then you, then you begin, you say, you see dullness in this context, you can actually review it and understand it. Because then you're not actually just overwhelmed with, with sleepiness, with low energy. And then if you be able to recognize what it's about and how to, how to allay it, then the, this teaching then becomes very useful for dealing with it in situations where we might feel more justified about being dull. We start to, you know, not resent the low energy state or feel it's a waste of time or can't be bothered or why is this happening to me? We actually examine it. And we, you know, because you, you realize the way out of dullness is through taking an interest. Not through ta- making a self out of it, but by examining it as a dhamma. Effects here, it works there. You can do this, you can do that. You know, you can actually see how you can work with it. Restlessness is a very difficult hindrance. Is a dis- restlessness is like uh, a fidgety, worrying, fretful quality, which can be on a kind of fairly mundane level. And we've got things we are worried about or uncertain often connected with doubt and sensitivity and really it's like a desire that things be still and settled and good and harmonious the good kind of desire but and this one is is a hindrance that, that crops up time and time again when we look in terms of the the way that another way the Buddha reviewed that the the, uh, the difficulties the hindrances as, as fetters you know, the, the, and uh, so even though uh, doubt at least certain area of doubt doubt about the practice in the path and qualities of desire. Um, on a mundane level, the sense desire and ill will can be relinquished, obviously with, by people who are proficient, but yet not fully accomplished. Only fully accomplished arahants are people who have relinquished restlessness. You know, consider, see, isn't it that like sense desire is about an object, isn't it? Really, it's just about a kind of an, an object. So that if one has understood forms and feelings, their their changeable nature, and their not self, and their unsatisfactoriness, and you wish you. Is difficult, but you can you can you know you can you something you can actually is more tangible. You can come to you can tangibly practice with that in this world of forms and feelings, and sense desire particularly has got such a kind of you know it's an inflaming. So because of that, it's quite coarse, and it bursts up, and it, it kind of pulses. So you can actually and you can find ways in which you can just stop by. Stop it the way that, for example, you uh, you know you feel yourself about to sneeze. You can kind of check it, or you feel you know you can actually just check it, hold it back, 
pull it back just by withdrawing from that particular form and placing your mind onto another form, another object. So just the method of, of suppression. And then reviewing with insight the nature of form, any form is just itself rather illusory. It has no form is just an appearance of things, not the, not their real nature, not the actual reality, but just the way they appear. And the way they appear changes and flows and is bound up with habitual perceptions which are very which are changeable and depend on your mood sometimes. So sense desire is, is something that's much more tangible and, and recognizable. You don't feel sense desire for food when you're just eating a meal. You know, it, 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 can, it comes and goes in quite kind of coarse, discernible uh, patterns. You can see the times when it's not there. And then you can actually just suppress the object or turn the mind to another object or review the object of sense desire. And ill will is a similar nature. It's, it's bound up with particular objects and finite causes. These can be suppressed and, and uh, self as connected to form is let is is tenacious but but manageable. Often what becomes more the case is for people who have cultivated is that the self very much is associated with consciousness rather than form. So the higher fetters, for example, deal with things like craving for fine fine mind states or uh, conceit, that is, feeling one, one is something on a kind of immaterial plane. One's got the, the the heart or the jitta is bright and it's this way and one is that identification with it some kind of immaterial state that perhaps is eternal or effulgent or permanent or me and particularly for people who are skillful in meditation then it's these one can arrive at states where mind consciousness there's no sense desire because the mind consciousness is so bright and and in itself so enjoyable in itself that who wants anything else and it's clear and it's bright and you can go into it and so one one feels a kind of uh, a sense of relief and satisfaction and so these other things just seem like you know pointless in course and less less fruitful but consciousness become is it's very rare for to to get past the sense of consciousness being self. So sometimes people feel that you know, Buddhism is the same as all other religions because it teaches the same kind of thing. But generally, religions, though they may not express it express it in the same way, tend towards teaching the way to some eternal consciousness. That then unites with uh, divine consciousness of some kind. When you contemplate consciousness, then you you see how why restlessness is so so uh, is so profound is because everything within consciousness is coming and going. Contact with that means that there's always this kind of movement, you know, like things. Everything resonates. So when I sit in the reception room in the morning and the cat's wandering around restlessly. Well, it looks like I call it restless. He kind of comes up to me and he looks and he wanders away and he goes to this venerable Karunika and looks at him. Looks about he's going to sit on his lap. Then he changes his mind and goes off and mills around the room a bit and sniffs at an anagarika. Comes back, contemplates the nuns, 
I think, oh, she'd sit down. And then he goes over to Venerable Kantiko and he clowns on his knee and you think, oh, this is it. He sits there and he, no, he changes his mind and wanders off again. And you start to feel restless. <laughs> I start to feel restless. Get this kind of feeling of like agitation in the mind. Because a cat is a is a is a, is like many other objects. It's kind of it's continually fidgeting around, and then you, when you can join your your mind with that, then you you get this kind of same movement. And when we look around the you know the sensory world, or and it, how refined and or unrefined it is, then it is like this. It's always coming and going, and there's. It says that that and that the way it affects us means we're continuing. You know, the trees are getting eaten by the rabbits and sort something out about that. And buildings falling down, bricks need doing, and the, then all this is letter to write to so and so, and there's a phone call I've got to make, and then there's people are coming today. So it's always like this, always comings and goings, and nothing ever settling down. It seems, it seems from an ordinary person's point of view that in a meditation monastery everything's incredibly quiet and still here. You know, no outward interference. But what, when you've begun to you know, get your focus gets sharp, you think, oh, it's a nut house. It's mad. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's all this stuff coming and going. What stuff? You know, there's no factories, no noise, no radios, no jukebox, no, no, no arguments, hardly anybody speaking. So, yeah, but the cat walks around the reception room in the morning. <laughs> drives me nuts. <laughs> You're a bit obsessive, aren't you? <laughs> well, the, well, the trees are—you know—the the trees are blowing in the wind. It's affecting my mind. <laughs> so many things to do here. You get this feeling, and, and then it starts to project outwards. So you sometimes you find yourself, think, well, so, so much to do, so much what? What is there to do? Feels like there's so much to do because there's so much possibly to do. You know, there's all these letters I should write, these things I should be dealing with, and, and there's this and there's that, and then you know, and then you think about the teachings or the veneer or. The abbot's meetings, or sort this out. There's all these kind of objects the mind that occur in consciousness, and you always want to kind of get them sorted out so things will be still and steady. And then, right, then we, you know, we got all that sorted out. Now, phew, now we can practice. <laughs> and then you go in your own body, you sort of sit here. Knees a bit. I'll just shift a little bit. Knee. That's it. My back's gone now. Right. Sit down. That draft. I'll just pull my sangati up over my neck so that draft doesn't get to it. That's better. What's that sound? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think. I think. I think somebody's left an alarm clock on. Is that an alarm clock? What if that draft comes to the roof? Somebody's must be holding the roof. We should get somebody to fix that tomorrow. <laughs> oh, your back's gone again. There's this little kind of just being conscious, you know, body, mind, conscious. Then, then all these things can coming in, and they're all kind of like that. And even when one isn't seeking them out, there's sort of just sensitivity. Puts you in, con- in contact with a world of comings and goings, and so many. Are, but the real thing about resonance is what the key, the the linchpin of it is that the feeling that oh, I should do something about it. <laughs> you feel, or even you do something about being restless and stop it. What's the way to stop it? So you search for the way to stop it. Because it's uh, the sense of the, the just taking it all, so that one feels that unsatisfied self through con- through this way in which consciousness picks up restless objects, and then the reflection comes back to a, a restless, unsatisfied 
self-image, the impression this way in the heart is that like that. So we can, uh, we can, if we're very skillful and experienced, we could shut it all off. Just kind of either find a very quiet place, but even a quiet place can have something going. But shut the mind down, shut the senses down, and shut it off. Maybe that would be stop it. This may be a possibility, but even then, there's, there's still the, the, the very nature of, of, of even taking a kind of bright and consciousness as a self means that there's still this oscillation. There's the, perhaps the feeling of is this it? Or how to make more of it? You know, you kind of look at nervous trembling within that. Desire to be something. Desire to be something, some kind of consciousness or another, to be a bright consciousness, I means still there will be the restlessness there. You know, when we, when we try to understand these these uh, hindrances in associate in terms of desire, and then the what are called the the five kanda, what we take ourselves to be, the taking things to be self. And we recognize that really it's this, it's this re- reflection, reflecting that is the, of self that's the root of the problem. Desire is only possible when there's the possibility of me, of a me getting something out of it. So even if we just able to stop sense desire or put it away or shifted onto higher planes, still the possibility of me getting something is transferred. And me getting away from it all. Why these teaching of anatta something to be practiced at the beginning the path, the middle of it, and however far one takes it. On an ordinary mundane level of uh, selflessness, self, you know, where we start to be less selfish, more generous, more giving in our actions and our activities, more forgiving, compassionate, these kind of slightly higher qualities of selflessness. Devotion. And mindfulness, which is just reviewing things in terms of dumbness. This is ill will, rather than making a big thing out of it. It's not a wholesome dumber. Why is it not wholesome? Instead, to kind of review these these things and how they work and how they can be laid, like the way that one just opens up a bag and you see what's in it, and that's that, that's that, and it fits there. More like this, rather than getting into a kind of whole guilt and fear and denial trip around it all. The mindfulness is a, is a is a practice that's comes from a Buddha, it's suffused with the whole spirit of of anatta, of dispassion, seeing things like this. With mindfulness, the the, the only drawback is we we tend to attach to the technique or to the activity of doing it and we come to the point of I am being mindful. So, so, so 
So we sometimes this this way means that we we always want to stay in a particular rhythm or style where we can feel I'm, we're being mindful. Doing things kind of in a very slow, deliberate way, which is certainly an excellent way to to establish and, and is often that which is taught in order to establish it. But then we can attach to that. So the feeling of wanting to be in a kind of stable, calm position. Samadhi is a very is a very excellent uh, cultivation in terms of anatta because then the the samadhi then so much of the um, mental activity calms down. One can actually review perception, states of perception, consciousness, and so that the the activities of the mind calm down. The sense of identification with them. Persona is strung together by familiar mental patterns, mental perceptions, rhythms in body, rhythms, mind, energies, and rhythms can be changed, and we get suddenly you know it's a different different reality, different experience. So this is a very good way, also. But then again, the drawback tends to be of attaching the self to the to that state of consciousness. Even called niroda, when there's the stopping or the uh, the cessation of mental activity, the thoughts and feelings. In describing the uh, path, the Buddha occasionally referred to this term, the dispassion and cessation, and then talked about quality called relinquishment or vosaga which is considered to be the supreme this is like a, a complete giving away relinquishment of ownership of self of belonging in or belonging out of it's a kind of it's almost like turning throwing away or turning inside out the process of consciousness from being something that's always trying to Pull, pull objects or states back in to itself to be something. It's like a complete giving it away. Any feeling, any perception, any state is just relinquished or let go of. Not, not rejected, but, but instead of being fascinated, attracted to, held, it's just it's the, the movement of the mind is a different movement. And it's the movement of the total turnaround of desire in its in its subtlest form. This is uh, something that uh, the seeds are sown in, in the way that we the way we live. Uh, feeling of giving ourselves, of uh, you know, giving ourselves to to a practice, giving ourselves to a sangha, to a to a tradition that isn't always exactly, over <laughs> sometimes very rarely, in line with our personalities. Uh, awkward conventions, rather training rules that slow us down or make us feel a bit silly. Some of these, sometimes these training rules make you feel like you're so some kind of delicate little flower. You know, it's got to be chaperoned around. Like when I was, th- when I was three, it was the last time I was chaperoned, and I had somebody take me around places. And I kind of was able to get on my own. And when I became a big now I had to be sh- chaperoned again. Because I'm so delicate, somebody might have a go at me. So <laughs> some of us are quite embarrassed by this. You know, I get driven off by some lady who's old enough to be your 
mother, you know, somebody else to get along with you to protect you. <laughs> and on a personality level, these things can be somewhat awkward or funny or embarrassing. And when we we're just kind of giving ourselves that, giving up the any kind of image of being foolish or embarrassed or delicate or great or petty or small or the greatest or the smallest or the most insignificant or the purest or the corruptest all this stuff relinquish it it's just this being the end of the line on the middle of the line on the top of the line is just something a position for relinquishment and that's all that's all it really means just see what your mind does to this one <laughs> can you can you let go of it? And then the, the whole, that spirit really affect helps us with uh, the way that we are, our consciousness can, is always measuring things in terms of self and tends to measure ourselves in terms of objects, situations. That we find that uh, relinquishment is not a not a feeble or dis- despairing quality. It's actually a it's the transformation desire into what's called chanda, it's like zeal, enthusiasm. It's like a love, a love of giving up, a love of relinquishment, love of giving oneself, love of going beyond. And then suddenly we realize that this desire is actually only a strange perversion of that. It's only a mistake. It's only born out of ignorance. That, that vitality in us, that kind of quality of consciousness that's, that streams out. And it gets kind of, by ignorance, gets perverted and corrupted into desire. It gets corrupted into, into thinking that the, you, you, there's something to be pulled back, something to be held onto. And when that can be relieved, released through understanding these objects and through relinquishing them, and the true nature of consciousness is revealed, being bright, pure, You see, desire is not a fundamental nature, even though it, we can get that impression through watching it, you know, that we have such a lot of it. But then we also have to remember and practice and keep in touch with our spirit of our, our, our ardor, our chanda, that which really keeps us going. And you realize that rather than trying to be something or become something, you, the whole possibility of this practice is to just the chance to give oneself to Dhamma, just to give it all to Dhamma. It doesn't matter where we are, whether we're restless, worried, averse, hatred, black despair, joy, love, calm, tranquility, rapture, whatever it is, is we, we give it to Dhamma, which means we, we see it as that, we review it as that, we put our effort into contemplating it as that. And so that for that, you, know, you have to relinquish the self-image, just for that one-pointedness, because you can't, you can't possibly review these things if there's some feeling of measuring it against oneself. So we have to see, we give everything to Dhamma. We review it in that way. In our devotional practice, we bring that up. It's giving oneself to 
Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha to realize Nibbana, just giving one's life away for it. And the feeling that comes in the heart when we, we are able to express that to ourselves and recognize it. What else is there to do? Whatever the results, wherever we think, wherever we think we are at it on the path, what is eventually does it, the only possibility comes down is that we can see this out, practice with it. In terms of practice, you keep coming back to the what's the, any object, subtle, any perception, any even kind of shadowy image, anything that's reviewed in consciousness. What's the what's the the pulling towards it or the pushing away from it? What's the kind of imagery and associations it brings up? And can we just go back to consciousness itself? You know, so you see the, the something that's making you worried or restless or upset or one way or another. That's the I, I consciousness, and then look at it where it feel, how you feel it in the heart or the mind. That kind of movement, restless, worried, concerned, doubtful, angry, upset, and then the knowing of that. Knowing there's restlessness. Whatever, whatever form it takes. And then what is it that knows that? Some of these things are very deluding. story of when the Sariputta and Anuruddha were talking and Anuruddha has some, some problems about he's saying that even though he's got these brilliant mind states and fantastic mindfulness and Deva vision reviewing the thousandfold world system and unshakable energy he still doesn't feel very peaceful and Sariputta says well actually those things are just just projections of conceit worry and desire. <laughs> you know, all this stuff about being mindful is just your conceit. Or just the nature of conceit. It's better give this up and focus your mind on the deathless, on the undying. You know, this is, you know, what is it that's beyond this movement and change except the knowing of it? Consciousness. Pure consciousness. But then if we start to think, oh, pure consciousness is what I need. That's what I want. That's what I have to have. That's my real nature. That's what I am. That's in truth, truly, my true nature is pure consciousness. That's what then you know, back comes desire again. So there is, but but you can't you can't you can't imagine it as self. You can't try to hold it that. You just act with it. You just work with it. You just practice with it. You don't try to retain it, accumulate it, store it up. So even that is like given away. It's not stored up. It's just that which is given to this experience. Witnessing, working with the bright or the low or the dark or the small or the great or the near or the far, the subtle, the refined.